There's another side A tales to the head 1953 House Concurrent Resolution 108 Whereas it is the policy of Congress as rapidly as possible to make the Indians within the territorial limits of the United States subject to the same laws and entitled to the same privileges and responsibilities as are applicable to other citizens of the United States to end their status as wards of the United States and to grant them all of the rights and prerogatives pertaining to American citizenship oh really tanse Greetings from Lenape Hoking, Manhattan specifically. That's you. I'm in Lenape Hoking too, but more in the Canarsie area. For those of you who might not know, that's Brooklyn by the original name. Welcome, Yuli Haylisti, to Not Invisible: Native Women on the Front Lines. I'm Shay Vasser, and I'm Tanis Peranto, your host. I just read to you from the policy of termination and relocation for native nations, otherwise known as the Indian termination policy. Termination policy. Sorry, that phrase still blows my mind. We decided to do a little history lesson because this week's guest has done some amazing work highlighting the erasure and jurisdictional craziness that is at the roots of many of the issues that Indian country battles today. It is pretty absurd. Yep, you can look it up. The Congress of the United States established the policy in 1953 and it was in place until late 1969. The intent was to assimilate Native Americans into American society. Policymakers wanted to end tribal identity and reduce appropriations. In other words, cut funding. If you can't change them, absorb them until they simply disappear into the mainstream culture. That was a quote famously said by Ben Nighthorse Campbell, a Cheyenne American U.S. representative and senator from Colorado from 1987 to 2005. So essentially, this policy was intended to strip native people of our land, our culture, and our communities. And to be clear, this was my mom's generation. So many people alive today were subject to these policies, policies that continue to affect us. Even this year, just in March, that was a couple of weeks ago, Congress moved to disestablish the Mashpee Wampanoag Reservation in Massachusetts and remove their lands from trust, which means that the land can be sold out right from under them. Yeah, and as a reminder, Cape Cod is still native land with native residents. In 2019, the Mashpee Wampanoag had more than 2,900 enrolled members, but on March 27th of this year. The Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs informed the Tribal Council that their reservation designation would be rescinded, and over 300 of their acres of their native land would be removed from the federal trust. This was an order from the Trump administration and the U.S. Department of the Interior. This is outrageous, but I'm empowered knowing that we have fighters on the front lines of policy and journalism, like Rebecca Nagel. Rebecca is an activist, a speaker, and a journalist. 
She is also the host of the Webby Award-winning podcast, This Land, which weaves the story of a murder, an ongoing Supreme Court decision, and her own personal connection to her family's land. Best of all, Rebecca is from my nation, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. So in our discussion with Rebecca, and when reading and rereading the transcripts, we realized that she dropped some really great gems. We also realized that we kind of needed to frame a larger issue. Rebecca's work has educated masses on the history of broken treaties in Oklahoma, exposing the roots of a longstanding U.S. tradition of erasure. On this week's episode, we discuss how the tactic of erasure is still at play in data collection, resource allocation, and ingrained racism in the mainstream justice system. Welcome, Rebecca. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Osio, Gohin, Sawaton, Joplin, Missouri, Awatasadola, Telek, Janelle, Digagi, Gaelge, Michael Nagel, Sarah Thompson, Dundon, Aguilis, Jagesa, Francis Poulsen, Dundon, Jihad, Sladit, Saikon, Utasa, Slekoni, Histi, Degadefquan, Tal, Jidetia, Rigohidno, Dalekayes, Gaelan. Hi, my name is Rebecca Nagel. I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. I grew up in Joplin. I live in Tahlequah, Oklahoma now. I am a journalist, and so I write for different outlets. I freelance, and I hosted and wrote the podcast This Land, which was a documentary-style series about a court case that is going to have a big impact on treaty and land rights here in Oklahoma. And in addition to that, I also have worked for my tribe. I graduated in December in our adult language immersion program. So in addition to journalism, I'm also a second language learner of Cherokee. I am a storyteller and I am a journalist because I believe in the power and the transformative change that can come from storytelling. Let's jump right in. Indian people have a really complicated relationship with the government, and so many non-Natives are clueless to the struggles that we deal with as Native people. And there just needs to be more of a public understanding of the United States' legal relationship to the first people of this land. We're just sort of erased systematically from everything, from, you know, the news, from pop culture. I mean, I'm writing a piece right now just about how we're missing from the data. So like in this moment of coronavirus, where so much of the national conversation, and not just the conversation, but the allocation of resources is being driven by numbers in a lot of the racial demographic data that's already coming out. You know, we're categorized as other, or we're just like not even included as Native people. And I think that, you know, that gets down to the heart of how anti-Indigenous racism functions in this country. I think it functions as a form of erasure. Native Americans living on reservations are like the least connected group of people in the U.S. And so already there was this concern that the 2020 census, the undercount was actually going to be lower than it's been in the past. There were a lot of regional and state groups and tribal governments and, you know, urban Indian leaders doing a lot of work to do outreach. And now with the way that coronavirus has limited in-person outreach, people are even more concerned. And I think for good reason. Hey, Shay, did you fill out the census? Yes. Thankfully, I was able to fill it out online. It is so important because the government has no clue what the real numbers are for Native people. And in the shadow of COVID-19, 
it's more important than ever that we get it right. Rebecca, can you explain from your perspective why the census is so important to Indian country? It's sort of the base of numbers that people use. So when we talk about Native Americans being 2% of the population or there being 5 million Native Americans, like those numbers come from the census. Like when we talk about, okay, like the majority of Native people don't live on reservation, 70% live in urban areas. Those numbers come from the census. Just for my own reporting, when I dug into the census, I think they're really inaccurate. Like I don't think we have an accurate data set of the Native people living in the United States. And I think that's a huge problem because it's not only directly tied to how federal funding is spent and how it's allocated. It's also tied to how congressional seats are allocated. There are tribes that even use census numbers to allocate like their council seats. It literally translates into how much representation people have in their different governments. And then also, I mean, I think it's just this number and this statistic and these figures that we use to advocate on all sorts of different issues. The community survey that the census does, you know, those are where we get numbers sort of like from how many people are living without indoor plumbing, you know, what are the housing needs? Like, you know, as we're talking about these issues around coronavirus, like a lot of those numbers are from the Census Bureau. So what's new and different about 2020 is that the Census Bureau is moving, responding to the census online. And we know that access to technology access to even just sort of good data plans on your phone is really limited in Indian country. And when it comes to broadband, actually Native Americans living on reservations are like the least connected group of people in the U.S. The digital divide is a massive problem for Natives on reservation land. In May 2019, the Federal Communications Commission cited that just 46.6% of housing units on rural tribal lands have access to that service, a nearly 27-point gap compared to non-tribal rural areas. It's a huge obstacle, especially when trying to adhere to social distancing protocols during COVID. Rebecca, how is this affecting census worker outreach? All the in-person, all the events, all of that is obviously canceled. And so people are having to kind of switch and figure out how to do that kind of outreach online, which is really different. The other thing that has been held off is census workers knocking on people's doors. Like, obviously, we don't want people to do that during a global pandemic, but that is one of the ways our community is counted. And those areas that the census is planning to go to door to door are disproportionately reservations. It's like a huge concentration of reservations and Native communities. Can you talk more about the data you are seeing coming from Indian country? What information is crucial to the health of Native communities? I can talk about the reporting I did this past week where I looked at from the CDC to IHS to state and local health departments who is collecting data on Native Americans and publishing it. And I was looking for, too, if any of those groups were publishing data of tribal affiliation, because we know that, like, just Native American isn't enough. Like, as sovereign nations, we need to know, like every other country in the world, like, we need to know how this illness is impacting our citizens. The only place I could find where people were publishing data about COVID-19 by tribes were tribes themselves. Like, nobody else is even collecting it that I could find. 
And then the place that's aggregating that data and making it up to date in real time. So, you know, you have pieces of data from all these different organizations with Indian country today. So it's our independent native national paper. And so it's not, you know, the IHS data that they publish is extremely incomplete. Uh, it doesn't include all IHS facilities. It also doesn't include hospitalization and death rates, which are really important data points even in the COVID-19 response of just collecting data, which is like step one of fighting this pandemic, you know, the people who are really on the ground and getting the information in Indian country is tribes themselves. And, you know, the people who are putting that information together and piecing it together are Native journalists. And if we're not getting an accurate count, then we, we don't have that data to advocate for a community's needs. You mentioned the most reliable source for Native information is reported by Native journalists. But we know these stories aren't reaching the majority of non-Native channels. Where's the disconnect? What has been your experience as a Native woman in media? As a journalist, what I see in the media environment is, one, that there are hardly any papers that have Native staff. So we're really, really, really underrepresented Native journalists as just being staffed on papers. You know, it's like you have these rare exceptions, like Nick Martin, who's a staff writer, um, Tristan Atone, who just became the editor-in-chief of the Texas Observer, which is really, really, really exciting. And the magazine that he came from, uh, High Country News, is the only non-Native outlet that I know that specifically has an Indigenous affairs desk. When you look at even big papers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, it's like they have a correspondent for foreign countries. They have a desk, you know, in major cities around the world, but they don't have like one staff person who's designated for Indian country. And they don't have hardly any Native staff. And so what you see a lot of times in the coverage, I think is a few different things like one is sometimes when they try to cover a mean country, they really miss the mark because of ignorance. So we need to look at it as a failure um, that they're just not dedicating the resources to this issue um, that they need to to adequately cover it. I think the second thing that you see is that there's this lag time between when things happen in our community and when it gets reported in the mainstream media. That's happening right now with coronavirus. And so you know, on Navajo Nation, there is a really scary and disturbing outbreak that is happening. And the numbers have been growing really quickly for weeks. So this interview was recorded April 27th. And since then, the mainstream media started to cover COVID-19 and its devastation on Indian country. However, it was weeks late. On our last episode, we spoke with Navajo filmmaker and activist Ali Young, whose work with Protect the Sacred is bringing much-needed attention to the crisis. Rebecca, what is your view on the overall news coverage of COVID-19 in Native communities? The Navajo Times and Indian Country Today and Indians.com, all these Native outlets have been covering it daily, covering the numbers, covering you know, the measures that the Navajo Nation is taking to protect its citizens, you know, things like extended curfews and things like that. And, you know, the New York Times did a story about it, but it was, you know, three weeks after Native press had already been covering it. And I think we saw the same thing with Standing Rock, where, you know, it wasn't until literally months 
after native media had been covering the protests that it, it got picked up by the mainstream media. And I think that if it was on any other issue, we would think of that as bad journalism, right? Like the New York Times isn't the paper that publishes regurgitated news three weeks after it's happened on any other issue, right? They're the paper that breaks important and critical issues. Their reporters are embedded in these communities and really knowledgeable and on top of stuff. But then in Indian country, they just fail. <laughs> you know, like they don't have they don't have that infrastructure. Are there any other Indian country specific issues that are being ignored due to the coronavirus pandemic that's happening right now? Native leaders are fighting really hard and our native organizations are fighting really hard for Indian country to be included in the legislation that Congress is passing right now. Now we're seeing the Trump administration fail to distribute that money fairly. And and it happened with the first relief package. Money was allocated to the CDC, even though Native leaders made it very clear that the money needed to go to IHS if it was going to get into the hands of tribes in a timely manner. It took weeks for it to get into the hands of tribes. Meanwhile, tribes can't buy, you know, basic things like testing supplies. You know, tribes, tribes that have been made dependent on federal funding dollars by the way that those systems work, you know, that were governments that aren't allowed to tax the same way that cities and states are. The whole history of colonialism and everything is that we've we've been made dependent on those federal funding dollars. And those federal funding dollars are owed to us. You know, it's not that we get free healthcare through IHS. It's that we made exchange between the United States of giving up billions of acres of land and our way of life in exchange for a promise for healthcare, education, other and other services for our citizens in perpetuity. What we see over and over again is the federal government not meeting its treaty and trust obligation. And no, in no way, in no time is it more clear than during the coronavirus pandemic. And so I think during this pandemic, what we're seeing is vulnerable communities being hit really hard. People who are houseless. When we were talking about people who are incarcerated, we're talking about people who are undocumented, who are just afraid to go to the hospital, farm workers who are still working but don't have the right protective equipment. You know, even just people in the service industry, we see Walmart employees dying because they're interacting more with people. All of the precautions that people can take to protect themselves of working from home. You know, I put myself in this category. I've been working from home since the pandemic started, but it's a very privileged place to be. And we see a lot of vulnerable people in our communities that don't have that option. I'm, I'm happy to see us included in the conversation in the places where we are. And I'm disappointed in a lot of places to see our community get missed. Can you tell us a little more about the work that is being done in Cherokee Nation? In Cherokee Nation, I believe we have three rapid testing centers. So we're leading, (laughs) you know, we're leading Oklahoma. I I think that you're seeing that kind of response across Indian country of being more aggressive about fighting coronavirus where the federal government is failing. I think all tribes want to do that for their citizens, but not all tribes have the same access to resources in a moment of crisis like this. And that's where, you know, fully funding IHS, and the federal government fully meeting its tribal, its treaty obligations, it's so important so that, you know, we know that tribes are the best at providing services in our, for our own communities. And it's really important that we have the resources to do that. 
Speaking of Oklahoma, there's recently been extra attention on the state as the fate of five tribes and their sovereignty rests on a Supreme Court decision. Rebecca first reported on the Murphy v. Carpenter case in a Washington Post article from November 2018 entitled, Half the Land in Oklahoma Could Be Returned to the Native Americans. It Should Be. Her reporting prompted a podcast called This Land, which dove deep into Indian law as it was leading up to the highly anticipated decision. We'll hear argument next in case 17-1107, Carpenter versus Murphy. It's had kind of a wild ride (laughs) at the Supreme Court. It was postponed, uh, which is a very rare thing that happens. And then an an even stranger move, um, the Supreme Court granted cert to a totally different case, but that was basically asking the same legal question, which is, did Congress ever disestablish the reservation of Muscogee Creek Nation? And the way that question is being asked is, does the state of Oklahoma have criminal jurisdiction over Indians who committed crimes uh, within the reservation boundaries of Muscogee Creek Nation? And so they took a different appeal from a totally different crime, from a different defendant, and they are going to argue that case, which is called McGirt, by a teleconference on May 11th. So, you know, we were all waiting for the re-argument day on Murphy to be announced. And then we saw McGirt get announced. So then we were all getting ready to go to the oral arguments for McGirt in April. And then because of the coronavirus pandemic, they got postponed. And then I was like, this case is never going to be decided. <laughs> and then it, it is going to be argued now in May and then probably decided by the end of the term. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. We'll hear argument first this morning, case 1895-26, McGirt versus Oklahoma. The case was indeed heard on May 11th, two weeks after we spoke with Rebecca. However, the justices' inquiries focused more on rare what-ifs that would affect non-natives instead of the legal rights that natives have on their own land. It would be dramatic. It would, it would transfer, and, and we assume this would apply to all of eastern Oklahoma, not just the Creek Nation. Uh, all of eastern Oklahoma, any crime involving uh, an Indian as a victim or a perpetrator would be subject to federal jurisdiction, uh, not uh, state jurisdiction. And there, there are not the, uh, the FBI resources, the, the, uh, the U.S. attorney resources, the other resources. It would also call into question uh, a number of convictions that have been obtained under, uh, under uh, state law over, over the intervening years. But, and beyond uh, law enforcement, under this court's decisions in Sac and Fox, and, and um, Chickasaw, uh, the, the Indians could not be taxed by the state in the entire area of the former reservation of income tax if they earned it there. They couldn't be uh, imposed a sales tax. This would be a dramatic change from the, from the way everyone has understood it for the past 100 years. No decision has been delivered at this time. Rebecca goes on to explain the interrelation between the two cases and why McGirt was brought before the Supreme Court when Murphy still had no ruling. The Supreme Court is an opaque institution. And so when they do things, they don't give reasons. So we don't know why they postponed the decision originally last June. We don't know why they granted cert. And so all you can do is pure speculation. But there's a lot of evidence that the reason that they took McGirt is because so that Gorsuch could be part of the panel. So normally, you know, the Supreme Court has nine justices and Gorsuch had recused himself from the Murphy case because he had dealt with it 
in the lower court. And so that's kind of the ethical thing to do. If you've ruled on it in a lower court and then you get bumped up to the Supreme Court, you don't, you don't deal with cases that you've already dealt with. And so there was only eight justices ruling on Murphy. And the thinking is maybe they were stuck and they couldn't, you know, come to a decision or couldn't come to a decision that they felt good about. And so they found a case that Gorsuch could be a part of. And now they're going to hear basically the same issue and the same legal question, but with a nine justice panel so that they can write and make their own kind of definitive decision. A lot of these justices aren't educated in Indian law and yeah. are making decisions based on that that lack of education. So tell me a little bit about how that affects ICWA, MMIW, you know, if they're going into these issues not knowing the legality of not just uh, one treaty, but all the treaties that exist in the United States. In a separate case, there's a case that was heard by the Fifth Circuit early in 2020. And I was able to go down there and be present for the oral arguments and be in the courtroom. There was a judge who was trying to come up with like a hypothetical about could there be laws that would only apply to Native people. And the hypothetical that she came up with was about the problem of there being like too many drunk Indians going off the reservation. It's just so racist. That's people's perception. She felt fine saying that in open court, um, you know, on the record. So, you know, Indian country, where our tribes exist in the United States, we exist across the entire United States, but there are some places where there's a higher concentration, like Oklahoma, because tribes that whose original homelands are from like New York to the Southwest to the Southeast, we were removed here. And so Oklahoma has 39 tribes. And so the 10th Circuit is used to hearing cases having to do with federal Indian law, but circuits that have less tribes in their district don't have that experience. And so you find a lot of federal judges who don't know the basics about federal Indian law. And I think that is something that the right and, you know, people who want to undermine tribal sovereignty take advantage of. In the Murphy case, the basic questions are, was the reservation ever disestablished by Congress? You look back at the record and it wasn't, but Oklahoma tried to make all these arguments that, you know, if if the reservation is affirmed and like non-Native people wake up on a reservation, it's going to be this sort of like, you know, wild, wild west, chaos, the sky is falling down scenario. But if you actually understand how reservations legally function and the set of laws, ironically, many of which have been set by the Supreme Court that governs tribes' relationships to states and tribes' relationships to non-Native residents and also non-Native-owned fee land, you kind of get that actually that shift in jurisdiction would be pretty minor because tribal jurisdiction, both in criminal and civil proceedings, is already so limited. With respect to consequences, there will not be turmoil from an affirmance. The Creek Nation wishes to be very clear that significant practical disruption would result from disestablishment, not from retention of the uh, tribe's rec- of the recognition of the reservation. Uh, it is true that Tulsa is not Pender, uh, but Tulsa is not different uh, from Tacoma, the city of Tacoma, much of which lies within the Puyallup Reservation or from the millions of other acres of land, which this court said in Atkinson, non-Indian fee land lie within reservation boundaries. Uh, There will not be turmoil because of three reasons. One, this court's precedents 
restrict tribal power over non-Indians on fee lands within reservations. Those are restraints that we understand and respect. Secondly, and conversely, the state retains plenary authority over non-Indian fee lands within reservation. Plenty of authority to tax and, and to regulate. Um, and third, uh, and Oklahoma, the history of Oklahoma is not exceptional, but what is exceptional in Oklahoma is the extent to which the state and the nations have forged cooperative agreements that already address many of these well, issues. Well, suppose uh, an Indian is charged in, with having uh, committed a mugging in Tulsa. What, where will that case end up? If, uh, an Indian, Your Honor? Yeah. Uh, that, well, that case would end up either being prosecuted by the, the federal government or by the nation itself, or, or both con- concurrently. Because people don't understand federal Indian law in that detail, people can kind of go out and make these sort of wild claims in court boldly, <laughs> and they're not <laughs> challenged on And I think that's, you know, as somebody who watches these issues, and as a journalist, it it irks me to no end. And I think that's one of the reasons why we need better public information about federal Indian law. You know, it's this really unique area of the law. It's complicated. It's different. And your average American citizen doesn't know sort of tribal sovereignty 101. You know, like people don't understand what a federally recognized tribe is. The lack of public knowledge on our diverse histories, our laws, our existence, it all adds up to the same erasure we still see today. Did you see evidence of this when you were living on the East Coast? The indigenous community that was in Baltimore and was in Maryland and was in the DMV was really invisible. And it makes it so hard to advocate for issues when people... A, don't even think about you, and B, when they do, are kind of not sure that you're real (laughs) or that you're alive. And I think that those stereotypes are so deeply ingrained in the American consciousness. And and I think that that's kind of the barrier we have to break down because I think that we're not going to get policies. You know, we're not going to get policies that benefit federally recognized tribes until we have a voting public that knows what the hell a federally recognized tribe is. That's like one of the big things that motivates me is I see narratives that do drive change, that have have driven change. And I think that as Indigenous people, like we've always, always been storytellers. We've always used stories to document our history, to know who our people are, to learn from. And so I think that there's real power in that. And there's a lot of opportunity to use those stories to create social change. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Folks, if you haven't already, you need to check out This Land, Rebecca's brilliant podcast, which was just awarded a Webby for Best Documentary Miniseries about two murder trials nearly two centuries apart and how a current Supreme Court decision will affect the fate of five tribes. When you hear it all linked together like that, you hear how insidious the whole thing is. From erasure in the media and the educational system to the isolation of nations on territories with little to no infrastructure to jurisdictional nightmares where even the judges have no idea of what our legal status is or what rights of ours are guaranteed. It just blows your mind. It's true. 
If it weren't for Rebecca and Native journalists like her, we would probably have no idea ourselves. (laughs) True. (laughs) It is so complicated. Thank you, Rebecca. Hi, hi. Wado, Rebecca. Please join us next time when we speak with Regan DeLoggins, Mississippi Choctaw Kiche Maya, a two-spirit activist, art historian, curator, and educator based in Brooklyn on Lenape land. Thank you for listening. This has been Not Invisible, a Red House series production. This episode of Not Invisible was produced by Stina Hamlin and Barry Adelberg, written by Vicki Ramirez, Shay Vassar, and Barry Adelberg, edited by Stina Hamlin and mixed by Matt Gundy. Theme song, Another Side, by Wild Whispers and produced by Ben Reno, Eli Lev, and Megan Lee. Our executive producer is Jen Beagle. I'm your host, Tanis Peranto. Run.